Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Carol Walker in this week for Matt Chorley. Coming up on the podcast today, a fascinating interview with Sir Howard Davis. He's an economist, former head of the CBI, now chairman of NatWest Group. And he's written a book about former British chancellors and how they responded to various crises. Well, that's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's hear from some of our favourite columnists this morning. Freelance broadcaster Angela Epstein and Hugo Rifkind. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it is time to talk to our two favourite columnists. And today we've got the journalist and broadcaster Angela Epstein. Hello, Angela. Hello. Good morning, Carol. Great to have you with us. And joining me here in the studio is the Times columnist and Times Radio presenter Hugo Rifkin. Um, good morning, Hugo. Good morning. Really good to have you with us. And um, as we were talking about, well, bad news, good news. Um, let's start with your column this morning, Hugo. Um, it's on, uh, it's bad, it's not the end of the world. Um, this is apocalypse fatigue. Yes, I was sort of struck by the way that our approach to the world post-COVID are generally people, you know, I don't think it's just me. Our approach to the world post-COVID is to, we're constantly waiting for looming disaster and not just small disaster, huge disaster. We feel a bit like we had a lucky escape with COVID. It could have been the end of the world. It wasn't quite. So we're now on the lookout to see what the end of the world is. And my point in this column is it's probably not coming. There are a lot of bad things going on. I'm not downplaying the bad things going on. The cost of living crisis is terrible. You know, the global food crisis is terrible. But it's not a Stephen King novel. You know, it's not like we're all going to be living in caves and having to eat our own dogs. And um, and it's worth, I think, just addressing the fact that bad things that bad things do pass. Uh, not least because when we start to think in an apocalyptic fashion, it's it's paralyzing. It makes us fatalistic. It makes it actually harder for us to address things like, for example, the food crisis or the energy crisis or climate change because we think, oh well, you know what, we're all screwed anyway. Yeah, indeed. And, and uh, you know, it, it's not great for mental health, general well-being, is it, Angela? Well, it isn't, except I was a little exercised by uh, what Brian Cox said, um, ex-pop star now, professor of all things science. Um, and he said, um, it, was, it was in the mail actually today, he said that it could be a law of nature that when intelligent species get power, they eventually use it to wipe themselves out. Um, so that suggests that human extinction could be caused by things like climate change or war. Um, so I think we've got two kind of clashing um, concepts sort of 
careering towards each other. Because on the one hand, Hugo is absolutely brilliantly right. We are we have put ourselves in a default position of catastrophizing everything. And there are very legitimate things to catastrophize people, whether people can heat or eat their homes, um, whether Putin will, will push the button, God forbid. And then there is this just kind of prevailing idea that, well, you know, this is just, we've got ourselves into this position of negativity. Uh, so I was just a little bit concerned that when a physicist, so I absolutely agree with what Hugo is saying, but when a physicist says, you know, intelligent life seems to be some kind of pre-programmed to knock itself sideways and, just, <laughs> you know, blot itself out, we're doomed. Maybe he should just go back to playing bass in Doom and everything and just <laughs> let us go enjoy blind ignorance. I mean, I think Brian Cox is generally right about everything, and I'm sure he's right about this as well. But just because human, just because humanity is now intelligent enough to do ourselves, it's not going to happen next week. You know, maybe we, maybe we've got a thousand years. Maybe we've got ten thousand years. Maybe we've got a hundred thousand years. You know. And, and actually, our chances of catching monkeypox, hopefully, at the moment, anyway, are not too high, Angela. Well, I think the problem with monkeypox is it's all in the branding because <laughs> it just. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's just got that disease has got very poor PR or good PR depends on what it's trying to achieve, because it just sounds so biblical and um, it's so kind of, you know, Neanderthal that you just think, well, literally, we're all doomed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not underplaying the seriousness of it, but I, I think, you know, post COVID, we just want to go out and, and embrace life again. Yeah, and uh, it may not be an apocalypse, but if you're stuck at an airport um, with the kids and the luggage um, going on a holiday that you probably tr first tried to go on two years ago and then you find at the last minute your flight's been cancelled, it's it's not great, is it, Angela? I mean, you would have thought that the airline industri industry collectively might have realised that, well, when people were able to travel and they get a lovely long break, um, that people are going to want to get away. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a perfect storm. You've got people heading abroad for the first time in a couple of years. You've got those who hitherto had holidays that were cancelled. So they've accrued vouchers and credit notes that they want to use. Um, and I mean, Manchester Airport is, is my local, if you like. I live in Manchester, know the airport very well. And I have to say without any sense of glee that pre-COVID, it wasn't the best run airport. It's small, sort of badly organised departure hall, various sort of things that haven't helped. But this is complete incompetence by the airlines and the airports. Um, you know, they've just basically tried to do it on the hoof after COVID. They should have seen this coming. Maybe they shouldn't have laid off so many workers. There was a very, as we know, generous furlough scheme. And they should have, you know, been able to anticipate that they would need to have sufficient staff to um, to handle the rising numbers because one of the things that kept topping the polls and all the things we wanted to do post-covid was go on our holidays yeah hugo um you're not planning to get away i hope <laughs> anytime in the next few days i'm going camping in essex look uh, perfect uh, nowhere near an airport much uh, nicer is that not a contradiction in terms <laughs> no it's a very oh i hope not we'll see uh, air travel's horrible <laughs> air travel's always been horrible air travel is just a, it's, 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 it's a horrible way to spend your time it was briefly lovely during the pandemic when nobody nobody else wanted to do it and you could get on a plane but now it's just horrible again get in your car let's have a ferry crisis instead um, Angela, let's talk about your um, the piece that you've written for The Times today, which is about dog attacks. Um, you, you're talking about testing owners for competence. I mean, loads of people got dogs and puppies during lockdown and, and some of them, at least, are now living to regret it. 
Absolutely. You know, the, the, the disclaimer here, first of all, is I'm not a dog owner, but I don't loathe dogs. But I do think often the problem is at the other end of the lead. And I do recognise, you know, all the things we know, fantastic for mental health, a catalyst for exercise, and just companionship. But uh, recent figures um, revealed that uh, hospital um, the, the hospital admissions have more than doubled in the last 15 years as a consequence of dog attacks. Um, and this isn't breed specific. It's not we know about the fabled dangerous dogs and um, and the savage attacks that, that, that they can that they can wreak on people if they're, they're not sort of looked after properly and trained properly. But apparently in general, dogs do, you know, they're, they're dumb animals. And I know owners go mad about that. But without careful ownership, careful consideration for their welfare. Um, so that's why I was suggesting that we need some kind of competency test to see if people are, the people are fit for purpose, never mind the dog. Um, there, there have been a lot of impulse buys. They've bought, people have bought from puppy farms abroad. Um, they've not thought about the fact that when they go back to work, the dog's going to be by themselves for hours at a time. And maybe they're not considered the diet properly. The intention may be absolutely coming from a good place. But I think there needs to be some independent assessment. And, and if dog owners, the responsible dog owners who are all out there say, well, this is not fair. We've always done a good job. Great. Let the test validate that. But, but let's have some kind of theory test and maybe even some kind of expert panel that's, that, you know, assesses them. And if it stops one child being bitten, then, you know, it has to be a good idea. Um, Hugo, what do you make of this one? I mean, I guess part of the problem is, I mean, you can't get a driving test at the moment. So if you've got to start trying to get a, a dog owning test as well. That could be a, another whole host of problems. Well, I think you're going to have a bit of an, an illegal dog problem. And indeed, you quite often do have an illegal dog problem because a lot of dog, dog attacks are, are illegal dogs or illegally bred dogs or breeds that shouldn't exist. But I think it's, it's worth remembering the dog you're most likely to be attacked by is your own dog or your family's dog. Uh, and assuming you're not a delivery man. Delivery man is a whole different world. The dog you're most likely to be attacked by if you're a delivery man is any dog. But the, the business of being attacked by a random dog in the park, while it does happen, it's uh, it's pretty rare. Uh, and um, and I, I, I am a dog owner. I think um, I think it's, it's absolutely right that people need to understand the responsibilities they're taking on when they own a dog. I also think, I've also been quite shocked since I got a dog to learn how many people are just really, really, really scared of dogs. And I sort of... I just don't think that's really helpful for anybody uh, because generally there's oh. not much reason to be scared of dogs. And a lot of the reason why people are scared of dogs is because they're simply not familiar with dogs. And I wonder if there should be something in our schooling that, that tries to teach people about dogs in some sort of way. Angela, I can hear you longing to come in on that. Growling in the background. <laughs> um, now, Hugo, I'll, I'll, you know, let's dispense with I absolutely respect your opinion, uh, which I do, and I understand. And I'm not a dog owner. I hold my hands up. Although, you know, I've got close friends. My sister's got a gorgeous dog. But I think there is a, a kind of, um, not, not pointing the finger personally, but with some dog owners, there's a kind of lazy sliding into, it's not, it's not the dog. He's only playing. I've been mm. on the receiving end of walking through the park quite innocently, not doing anything wild or provocative. Um, at least not with dogs, and then um, and the, and the dog has sort of hurtled up to me. All my kids, um, yeah, and no. the owners, in, the knee-jerk response has been, "Oh, it doesn't normally do it. He's only playing. It's like a get-out-of-jail card." Oh, but, they, but, they, they always but, say but, that. But they're, but they're, and, but they're not always lying. You know, I mean, I think this is this is sort of partly what I mean is that the an owner's experience of their dog is going to be very different from anybody else's experience of a dog. And when an owner of a dog says to you. 
he's just barking because he does that. He's startled. Then they're, they're not generally trying to cover up the fact that actually he's actually going to go for your throat and they just don't want you to know. Uh, but it's quite reasonable for people who are not familiar with dogs and certainly not this particular dog to to perhaps take that with a pinch of salt and to be frightened anyway. No, but yeah, and I used to have a uh, we had a, a spaniel um, until at, at the age of sixteen. Um, he uh, he he sadly moved moved on but i've had went to live on a farm he went to he live went on a farm. to yes. to live um on the, uh, in in that in that land where uh, yeah he could simply lie in his basket and no one was ever late with his dinner um but i've had situations where you know this lovely little spaniel was mm. attacked by other dogs oh, in sure. the park i was in i was in uh, america a couple of months ago uh, at a campsite uh, at a, a camper van site and i was walking towards the toilets and a huge dog came bounding up towards me from somebody else's somebody else's rv a sort of alsatian collie cross really really big thing bounding at me and i had a, a second and i thought well i can't outrun this thing because it's moving at 40 miles an hour and i'm almost certainly not going to beat it in a fight but i have met quite a lot of dogs in my life and so i squatted down on my haunches and i smiled at it without opening my mouth don't show your teeth and said hello and the dog sort of came up and nuzzled me and i could well imagine the instinctive thing for a lot of people to do would be to turn around and run away because there's a big dog running running at you. But yeah. there's a degree of dog education that I'm not saying it should be. It's not an obligation on people. It's not somebody's fault if they don't know if they don't know dogs. But it just might be helpful if they do. Well, I think but that Boris and sorry. Carrie Johnson could perhaps do with <laughs> <laughs> a few. Um, I don't know whether whether they'd even pass your um, dog owning competence test, <laughs> Angela. Um, but well, we yeah. were hearing we were I've hearing been... weren't we last week that um, in the midst of all the um, um, the chaos and the Sue Gray report and trying to get out a package of measures. Dylan the dog was going mad and barking and rushing around the the garden and um, and the and the problems for the prime minister keep piling up. We've had uh, Angela Ledsom this morning coming out uh, a Brexiteer, a former really loyal supporter of his, um, and uh, adding her voice to those really criticising Boris Johnson's leadership. Angela, I know we could talk, talk about dogs all morning, but let, let, let's just talk about <laughs> Boris Johnson as well. Yeah, we will. We will. Although, you know, the, the, the line that joins the two is not entirely... Um, Un untrained, not forever cocking their legs, <laughs> not to be trusted around other people's knees. Yep. Yeah, some people want to stroke it. Absolutely. I'm talking about the hair. Um, anyway, so what I would say about, about Boris Johnson is, is simply that, yeah, I, I get it. I think the number of letters that have been submitted was it sort of nudging 40 I think the FT said this morning um but but the fact is that um this is a guy who we all know all the terrible things that happened in Downing Street they cannot be condoned there is no there is no excuse for any of the things that happened and we all know about the you know the parallel suffering that people had but equally um we've got the issue of uh, the fact that he has he's never he's never lost anything he never lost um, a general election. He, ne he won London twice. He you know, secured the EU referendum. And I think there will be still a lot of members of parliament who will get a bit shaky about the fact that do we ditch somebody who's actually got a, a zero track record in losing anything? Yeah, uh, when we asked um, Bob Neil, one of those who's put in a no-confidence letter on Times Radio earlier, um, is Boris Johnson no longer a winner? He said, I don't believe that's the case. He said, um, even though he's put in a letter calling for a vote of no confidence, Hugo. I mean, it's Boris Johnson. They knew what they were doing. You know, it's like they, they, they made this guy their leader. They made him prime minister. No one can look at no one can look at Boris Johnson's behaviour over the last three years and go, oh, I didn't expect Boris Johnson of all people to behave like that. That's what he is. It's what he does. And so they, I mean, they've 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 made their bed. You know, they may well force him to have a leadership contest. He'll probably win it. Uh, this, these are these are the decisions they've made. I've got very very little sympathy for the travails of the Conservative Party at the moment. I would say. 
Angela Epstein and Hugo Rifkin there. Coming up next, how do chancellors deal with an economic crisis and what can Rishi Sunak learn from them? You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Carol Walker. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, right at the heart of government, the most important and often the most tense relationship is between Chancellor and Prime Minister. Chancellors need to keep the nation's finances on course, protect us from economic chaos. Prime Ministers want to get re-elected. That creates a tension um, that often spills over from Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to the present day when low-tax Rishi Sunak is somewhat at odds with high-spending Boris Johnson. What can we learn from the history of chancellors? Well, Sir Howard Davis is a British economist, uh, first chairman of the Financial Services Authority, uh, a former head of the CBI and now chairman of the NatWest Group. And he has written a book about Britain's chancellors called The Chancellors, Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times. And he's with us here in the studio. Uh, Good morning, Howard. Good morning. Really good to have you with us. Um, Rishi Sunak is facing this... Um, almost um, unprecedented storm. We've got a cost of living crisis exacerbated um, by the war in Ukraine and the sanctions. And we've just come out of the pandemic when he had to spend a huge amount of money. I mean, do you think there are lessons that he can learn from some of the previous chancellors that you've (laughs) talked about in your book? I think so. I mean, you might subtitle the book Stuff Happens, because if you look over the last 25 years, which is the period I cover, then a lot of chancellors have come in with high ambitions and clear strategies and then have found themselves buffeted. Um, Obviously, most obviously, Gordon Brown with the great financial crisis of 2008 Eight and onwards, Alistair Darling trying to deal with the consequences of that, George Osborne, of course, uh, with a clear strategy, but then having to deal with Scottish referendum and the Brexit referendum, then suddenly Brexit. So I'm afraid it's extraordinary how turbulent a period it has been over the last 25 years. But I guess what he might learn looking back, probably more from Alistair Darling maybe than anybody else, is that, you know, if you're in a hole, rule one, stop digging. And secondly, that you may get buffeted from time to time and get pushed off course. But if you've got a clear objective, that helps you. And Alistair Darling's objective was to stabilise the public finances after the Great Recession following the financial crisis. There were ups and downs, but that was what he was trying to do. I think the difficulty that Rishi Sunak has got is he says he's a fiscal conservative, but then he keeps having to do other things. I think he probably needs a longer-term plan, at least a medium-term plan, to say this is what I mean by saying I'm a fiscal conservative, this is how I plan to stabilise the public finances, because that, in the end, helps with market confidence um, and that creates an easier environment in which to respond to events. Yeah, and that was, um, of course, a very... I remember um, George Osborne constantly saying, talking about his long-term plan, that was his favourite phrase. I wonder, do you think that the role of the Chancellor has changed uh, in that 25-year span that you're looking at? Well, it changed right at the beginning of it, in that the Bank of England became independent for monetary policy. Previously, the Treasury had been responsible for monetary policy. Indeed, as a young man, I was the Treasury sort of 
desk officer for monetary policy. I was called grandly called principal monetary policy in the early 1980s. So that was a big change, and the tre Treasury took a little bit of time to adapt to that, to the fact that they didn't have the interest rate lever in their hands. And then there was another change that Osborne produced, called, which was the introduction of the Office of Budget Responsibility, the OBR, which sets the framework and reduces the opportunity for creative accounting. <laughs> in other words, chancellors can't now say, I believe that things are going to turn out in this favourable way and that's why I can cut taxes, because the OBR comes and says, excuse me, we don't actually think that is realistic or feasible. So the Treasury's changed in those two big ways, but otherwise, you know, it's a, the institution is recognisable from the one I worked in in the 1980s, frankly. Yeah, well, let's look at the five chancellors that uh, you have studied in your book. And we'll start with Gordon Brown. Um, as you say, uh, his uh, time as chancellor started off by this decision to make the Bank of England independent. I remember that was a, it was a big statement at the time. Um, and he then cancelled what was then described as third world debt. But it was the financial crash of 2008 when Gordon Brown was by that time prime minister, not chancellor, that really defined Gordon Brown's economic legacy. And I have said before, Mr Deputy Speaker, no return to boom and bust. Yeah. We will not return to the old boom and bust. Yeah. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. Brought down by bad mortgage investments, Lehman, which has 25,000 employees, will be liquidated. Good evening. Rather like the political version of Corporal Jones and Dad's army, ministers have discovered that merely yelling don't panic to save us at Northern Rock just doesn't work. So tonight the government has done something quite extraordinary, in effect offering a blank cheque to recompense every saver for every penny. Whether this will work, we'll know tomorrow from the queues on the high street. But is the government's own reputation for economic competence now on the line? Mr Speaker. The, f the first point of recapitalisation was to save banks that would otherwise have collapsed. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks and saved, saved, saved the banks. We worked with other countries to save the world's bank. We not only worked with other countries to save the world's banking system, but not one depositor actually lost any money in Britain. Well, uh, there we have it. Uh, Gordon Brown uh, famously used to talk uh, and taunt the Tories about having ended boom and bust. But then came the financial crisis. And uh, yeah, Gordon Brown was not able to save the world. Now, you've picked the two quotes that I imagine Gordon wishes he hadn't uh, uttered. And uh, that's probably slightly unfair, I would say, given a lot of the other things he did. I mean, Gordon Brown did have some solid achievements um, in relation to child poverty. Uh, he did. He was a redistributive chancellor. Um, and aside from the financial crisis, which, of course, would have destroyed uh, anybody's best laid plans, you know, he did leave the public finances in a, in a reasonable state. I mean, he had political enthusiasms, which the Treasury didn't really like. But uh, and, and he worked in a slightly odd way with the Treasury. He worked through intermediaries often through Ed Miliband and Ed 
balls rather than direct to Treasury officials. They didn't like that particularly. But on the other hand, you know, I think the Treasury officials have got a sneaking admiration uh, for Gordon and think that almost anybody would be blown off, would have been blown off course by what we had. Um, but of course, the other big feature of Gordon Brown's time as Chancellor was the <laughs> endless friction and increasing tension between him and Tony Blair because he he was wait, he was constantly waiting to get the top job wasn't he and and i mean the 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 extent of that um hostility at times between the two camps was really marked yes well you personally watched this yeah, <laughs> i remember it all uh, too closer, well closer closer than than i did i think you know if, if you take a bit of perspective on these things then the question is how far was this a personality issue that was all about you know when Brown would succeed Blair, this famous Granita deal. Um, and how far did it really, really matter um, in terms of policy? You know, can you say there were policy errors that were made because of that dysfunctional relationship? And, you know, bluntly, I'm not sure you can say that. I think that they kept the show on the road. Eventually, they did agree on quite a lot of things. I mean, Bank of England Independence was a big thing, as you've mentioned, and they did agree on it. They fundamentally agreed on the nature, on the deficit and some of the redistributional things. So I think it was a lot of sound and fury and clearly relationships were terrible on a personal basis. But I don't think that they were dysfunctional to the management of the Treasury. Um, Well, although Gordon Brown gets an awful lot of the credit for handling the 2008 crash, uh, it was, of course, Alistair Darling who was Chancellor at the time. If Alistair Darling looked a little tentative, he had reason to. For today, the Chancellor stepped into unknown territory and the country with him. This man doesn't have a reputation as a gambler, but truly, the plan he has outlined represents a dramatic throw of the dice. Only months ago, no one could have imagined anything this radical, but in those months, the world has changed. Alistair Darling perhaps has a a lower profile than many of those others that you have uh, written about in your book. Yes, he does. But I think if you ask Treasury officials, and quite a lot of the book is uh, informed by interviews with people who were there at the time, they have a great admiration for Alistair Darling, as much as anything for his calmness under pressure. You know, he was dealt an extremely poor hand. It was like a bridge player who opened his hand and found the top card was a nine. And that uh, that was very, very difficult. There was no money. And uh, every time he got into the office in the morning, some another bank had fallen over. And so his ability to ride with those punches and to make rational decisions through that was greatly admired, I think, uh, in the Treasury. And um, Alistair himself would never describe himself as a charismatic parliamentary or public performer. But I think looking back, you have to have quite a sneaking admiration for the calmness. Uh, and it could things, he could have made things a lot worse if he'd panicked. And you, um, of course, highlight his role during the independence referendum. He was at his post when the Scottish independence referendum was held. I'm very pleased with the result because Scotland has spoken very clearly. Uh, Just under two million people uh, voted to say no thanks to the risk of separation and to stay within the United Kingdom. Uh, We've still got one more council area to declare, but the result is very, very decisive. 
And uh, there was clearly a huge sigh of relief uh, in Whitehall more widely, but of course in the Treasury as well. Well, yes, this is an interesting example, actually. I think probably people haven't really focused on it as much as they might have done, of where a former Chancellor worked with the current, the then current Treasury actually quite closely because the Treasury produced the key economic documents that pointed out the dangers of separation and asked the difficult questions about what currency Scotland would use if it separated, uh, produced you know, quite substantial papers on the economics of separation. And most people think, certainly Alistair Darling thinks, that that was pretty decisive in swinging voters near the end, especially women voters, actually, if you look at the polls, who ask themselves, you know, is this a safe thing to do when you have the Treasury saying that there's high uncertainty about just what your currency will be? You know, what coins and notes will you have in your wallet at the end of this process? And so I think it was quite interesting. And Alistair says he thinks the Treasury played a blinder. And that's talking about the Treasury after he left it, not at the time. Um, let's move to 2010 and the election of a Conservative government. A new Chancellor enters Downing Street, uh, new problems. Firstly, managing the deficit after the financial crash. The Chancellor managed a smile as he left the Treasury this morning, but there wouldn't be much to joke about in the message he was about to deliver to the country. Are we facing more austerity, Prime Minister? The Prime Minister wasn't giving the game away, but the answer to the question is unfortunately yes. Austerity, that bleak scenario, with us not just until 2015, but for another three years on top of that. People know that there are no quick fixes to these problems, but they want to know that we are making progress. And the message from today's autumn statement is that we are making progress. But then came the Brexit referendum, which proved ill-fated for his political career. Isolationism has never served this country well. Whenever we turn our back on Europe, sooner or later we come to regret it. If we vote to leave the EU, we will not be voting to leave Europe. Uh, I think it would be a profound mistake, not just for security in Europe and our economic prosperity, but also for who we are as a nation. I don't resile from any of the concerns I expressed during the campaign, but I fully accept the result of the referendum and will do everything I can to make it work for Britain. Well, uh, George Osborne, of course, was known for the austerity years, Howard, but then when we got to the Brexit referendum, he was very high profile in warning of the, the economic dangers if we leave the EU, um, but of course accused by those on Boris Johnson's side of just um, trying to promote climate of fear. Yes. I mean, there's an interesting connection that I make in the book between the Scottish referendum and the EU referendum in that, as I explained a moment ago, the Treasury did play a decisive and successful role in the Scottish referendum. And the papers produced by the Treasury clearly did influence opinion and, in a way that they wanted. And so having triumphed in the Scottish wars, the Treasury thought that they could probably win in the continental European wars as well. And that didn't work out so well. And I think it's interesting to ask yourself why that was. And the, the simple, the issue in Scotland was relatively simple, what the currency was going to be. In relation to Europe, it was a bit more complicated, what the con economic consequences would be. But also, in fact, of course, we were operating in an environment in which emotional 
issues prevailed over some of the hard logic. You know, almost all economists said this would be bad for the economy, and a lot of people who voted said, so, "Well, that's fine." Um, but you know, I value our f- democratic freedoms, etc., more than I value our economy, and therefore, at that point, the Treasury is nothing like as influential. If that's your view, because the Treasury talks economics, talks GDP, talks productivity. And if you say I'm not interested in any of those topics, then the Treasury has got very little to say and is not influential. And so that was the the story that, you know, that the Project Fear documents produced by the Treasury in the EU referendum clearly did not swing it in the way they had in the Scottish one. And that, maybe they should have learnt from that. Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff. And of course, um, George Osborne and uh, left uh, Downing Street then uh, along with David Cameron. Um, Theresa May became Prime Minister and it was Philip Hammond who became Chancellor and was brought in to manage the exit from the EU. In just over two weeks' time, we run the risk of facing a very stark choice between leaving the EU with no deal or not leaving the EU at all. It is essential that we get a deal done. And I've always believed that the deal the Prime Minister has negotiated is a perfectly sensible way for us to proceed to leave the EU. It's not perfect, she's uh, acknowledged that, but it's a perfectly sensible way forward. Well, um, Philip Hammond was, of course, uh, seen by Brexiteers as uh, endlessly trying to um, not just block Brexit, but to try to um, make it more difficult and to try and remain as close to the EU as possible once we had left. And really, that battle over Brexit dominated Philip Hammond's entire time as Chancellor. Yes, I think sadly it did, and uh, Philip Hammond would acknowledge that. There's a lot of the other things that he wanted to do, uh, reforming the tax system, etc., were you know took a back seat and essentially were unimplementable because he didn't have the the political time and space, if you like, uh, to do it. I mean, for for people in the city, um, you know, they regard Philip Hammond as having done a brave made a brave attempt to preserve as much of the city's regulatory framework in Europe and as much of the city's freedom to operate as a European financial centre as as could be achieved post-Brexit. But, you know, that didn't work out in the end. So it, it's hard to say that he succeeded in that. But there'd be a lot of people, you know, not too far from this building who would give him very high marks for having tried. Um, fascinating stuff. Philip Hammond, uh then uh, left, of course, along with Theresa May. And uh, we left the European Union. Um, Boris Johnson arrives uh, back in 2019. Um, His first chancellor was Sajid Javid, um, but they had a pretty acrimonious split. Of course, Javid is now back in government. And then it comes to Rishi Sunak. Uh, Rishi Sunak there, um, but the country then rocked by COVID-19 and now the cost of living crisis. COVID-19 continues to take its toll on people and the economy. Lockdowns come and go, borders close and reopen, and the new Omicron variants creating more uncertainty. So how can we deal with the economic implications of an open-ended pandemic? Mr Speaker, I also want to reassure the people of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The furlough scheme was designed and delivered by the Government of the United Kingdom on behalf of all the people of the United Kingdom, wherever they live. That has been the case since March. It is the case now, 
and will remain the case until next March. The Russian president says a military operation is now underway in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine has declared a state of emergency. The full-scale invasion that intelligence officials had been warning about for weeks is now underway, and there are reports of explosions and attacks at several major Ukrainian cities. The oil and gas sector is making extraordinary profits, not as the result, not as the result of recent changes to risk-taking or innovation or efficiency, but as the result of surging global commodity prices driven in part by Russia's war. And for that reason, I am sympathetic to the argument to tax those profits fairly. Well, that was some of the well highlights and lowlights of Rishi Sunak's time at number 11. He had to deal with the pandemic. He introduced the passive furlough scheme, which a lot of people were very grateful for. He's now coping with cost of living. He's flip-flopped on windfall tax. How do you think Rishi Sunak's doing, Howard? Well, I think the underlying story here is, if you like, the recovery of the Treasury. Because when the, the current Prime Minister took office, he was... Uh, instinctively hostile to the Treasury, which he saw as being upon the Remain side in the referendum campaign, you know, which bluntly it was, as I've explained. Um, and therefore, he actually set out to um, minimise the influence of the Treasury in government. Dominic Cummings has said quite clearly that on their to-do list was breaking up the Treasury. And he wanted to go back to the old days that some of us can recall of Harold Wilson setting up a Department of Economic Affairs in Downing Street, you know, rivaling the Treasury's dominance over economic policy. Um, and then, uh, of course, the bust up with uh, Javid when he wanted to try to have all the Treasury special advisors in number 10, which Javid refused, which was, um, I think, important because it was, although Javid didn't get the job, it was still difficult for him to do what he wanted to do. And then COVID comes along and who can rescue the prime minister and the economy from the ravages of COVID? The Treasury can. And devised furlough schemes, a word we'd barely heard of before, devised bounce back loans, corona business interruption loans. I'm sure there are some fraud in those things, but they were very successful and very quick acting and they bailed the government out and bailed the economy out. And so suddenly, from being the Prime Minister's enemy, the Treasury became Prime Minister's best friend. And therefore, and the ideas now of breaking up the Treasury and knocking it down to size, we don't hear. So I think that's the underlying story of the Treasury coming back into prominence and showing its extreme power and value um, when times are tough. What about Rishi himself? He gets a lot of flack for his um, personal branding, his Instagram account, the glossy photographs, the Peloton. Yeah, he seems to have invented a treasury flag, something which is an old <laughs> treasury man I was blissfully unaware of. But he now is pictured in front of the treasury flag, which is a quite remarkable development. Um, so, yeah, there is that uh, dimension of him. Uh, but again, I think uh, somewhat like Alistair Darling, he's been pretty calm through this process. Uh, you know, I mean, he says different things at different times, but he does exude an air of competence. People in the Treasury respect uh, his hard work and his ability to understand the files and the dossiers. You know, he's not a he doesn't wing it, uh, Rishi Sunak. He may change his mind, but he doesn't go it out unprepared and uh, lacking in confidence, if you like. So, I mean, jury's out on a current chancellor. Many of them will have their 
obituary is written and rewritten several times, so it's hard to say how he will score. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, you talked um, at the beginning of this about this big decision to give um, the Bank of England independence. It now controls interest rates. Um, it's come in for quite a lot of criticism for failing in its one target to keep inflation under control. It's supposed to be 2%. Um, we're at now, what is it, 7 8% predictions it can go to 12 do you think the Bank of England is failing in that primary task that it has? Well, I think you've got to say, first of all, that some of the inflation that we've got is a globally driven inflation um, by the recovery, more rapid recovery from COVID than people expected, combined with the oil price boom, which is resulting from the war. So it's quite a lot of what's in inflation, you know, is something which is exogenous, as we say, which the Bank of England could not have done anything about. You know, had the Bank of England raised rates a couple of times last year, inflation would not be 2%. You know, it would still be sailing well above the target. It, there is, however, a decent argument, and I've, I did make it at the time last summer, that they should have started the tightening rates a little bit earlier than they did. And I think the key thing which they misread, and which a lot of other people misread too, was what was happening in the labour market. And it would seem that a lot of people have actually left the labour market, particularly a lot of older people, but also Brexit caused some people to go back to continental Europe and not come back after COVID. Um, and that that has meant that we now have this extraordinary situation of more job op op openings than people unemployed, but a million people fewer working than were in 2019. But they should have seen this, shouldn't they, the Bank of well, England? That's, that's uh, their one task, to keep inflation yeah, I mean, under control. Yeah, it's, it's fine to say that they should have seen it, and indeed, I think it's fair enough. It's a fair point. But they were in quite good company. The Fed didn't see it. The ECB didn't see it. Um, and a lot of economists didn't see it either. It's sort of crept up on us that a lot of people have left the labour force. And we still don't understand entirely why. It's some people taking early retirement and when they're asked then to come back and that they've got to start commuting again, they go, oh, I'm not going to do it. Some with long COVID, with uh, illness. Uh, other people, as I say, on the Brexit side, I think we shouldn't ignore that. Quite a few people going back to uh, countries that they'd come from. And so... These factors, I think, were not fully appreciated until a bit too late. And that is an error. There's no doubt about it. And just finally, um, Rishi Sunak, can he still claim to be a low-tax Conservative <laughs> Chancellor? Well, I think that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I don't dismiss it completely because he is declaring a sort of long-term strategic intent. And as I've said earlier, that, that has a value in itself. Uh, but clearly, um, at the moment... He isn't. Um, the tax take is rising. We have a promise of a tax cut in the future. But I have to say, you know, this is a product of a long period of watching the Treasury over 40 years. You know, one's sceptical about any promise on the tax system made two years ahead. You know, what value do you attach to that? What probability do you attach to it? Quite low. Fascinating stuff. Um, so, Howard Davis, um, thank you so much for talking us through your book this morning. Really good to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, and Howard Davis's book, The Chancellors, Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times, uh, is out now. That's all we've got time for today on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>